It's good to see everyone here this morning. Um, We are going to continue in our mini-series here called Flawed. And if you were with us here last week, uh, Pastor Sam led us through a particular famous character in the Bible uh, named Moses. Uh, He was a very flawed person. He had a particular horrible moral failure flaw called murder. Um, It's in my top three of bad things that you could possibly do uh, in this life. And yet God still chooses him to do possibly like the greatest thing in Israel's history, which is to rescue them from Pharaoh and Egypt and do these 10 like awesome plagues and walk through the Red Sea, journey with them for 40 years in the desert. And I mean, he's just, he's a flawed person. And on top of murder, right, Pastor Sam led us through like how many times did he just give excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse So finally, he gets to the point where he just tells God, you know what, okay, you got me. I just don't want to do it. It's not that I can't do it, I don't want to do it. Uh, And God gets upset, and God still uses him despite the flaw, despite the excuse. Uh, So the big idea that I took away from Pastor Sam's sermon last week, and I got his permission to, to say this, is I think God uses broken people like you and me to help broken people like you and me. Let me kind of say that again. I think God uses broken people like you and me to help broken people like you and me. And if God could use Moses, then he can use me. And I think he can use you too. For this week, I was sitting down and I was thinking about this word, flaw. Um, You know, I looked it up in the thesaurus. Yeah, I can't say that word sometimes, you know. And it's like words like blemish or like defect or whatever. And I'm like, man, a flaw just doesn't sound too serious. I mean, it's just it's a flaw. Um, I mean, my wife, she's sitting back there. All right, she's wearing this uh, diamond ring that, uh, that I bought her. And you, if you looked at her diamond ring, okay, I could tell you, honest to God, it has flaws. Her diamond definitely has flaws. But if you looked at it, you'd be like, what flaws? You know, know, those flaws are, they're they're too small to even see nor care about. And I feel like oftentimes, that's the way you and I think about our own flaws, right? It's just like, hey, you know what? My flaws, they're just not that big of a deal. You know, if you looked at them, um, you know, you you wouldn't, you'd say, like, what flaws? Okay. Now, thankfully, uh, last year, I uh, took two very wise women with me, Liz and Jeannie, and they took me to the Diamond District to pick out Francis's diamond. Um, best decision I ever made, other than proposing to Francis. Um, we get to the jeweler's shop, okay, and what does the jeweler do? Okay, he kind of like lays out these diamonds for you. I mean, and if you looked at a diamond, okay, you just looked at it, by itself, you would look at it and be like, oh, that's a great diamond. What flaws? It looks great. But I don't know if you ever knew this about diamonds. You probably knew if you ever bought one. But if you see a diamond next to another diamond, you can totally see which one is better. You can totally see which one has the flaw and which one doesn't. Okay? And that's a lot like you and me. We only look at ourselves, by ourselves, and we say, what flaws? 
but it's only when you're side by side with another diamond does it become aware, apparent to you. So if you've spent any time, like a lot of time with another human being, I mean, it could be a spouse, a child, a parent, um, even a pet sometimes. You spend enough time, and you're going to see that you have some serious flaws. Okay? Now, I've only been married a short three and a half months, and in the short three months of being married to Francis, I've come to realize more and more that I am a little butthole. <laughs> only in my head, I don't use that word but, I use this other, other word that I can't say right now. And that's what it is. I totally see my flaws, okay? And they're not so small to not care about, okay? They're flaws that I definitely care about. I know that they're there. I, I know it, it frustrates her or causes her hurt and pain, and I don't want those flaws. But I am a flawed person. And you know what? Side by side to Jesus, I mean... And we really see some flaws. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, your flaws are too small, what flaws? Uh, they're so small, not even care about, then that's your flaw, is you think that your flaws aren't a big deal. That's your flaw. You're welcome. That's for you, and that's for free. Uh, you are very, very welcome. Now, there's a very interesting thing about this book. Okay? It's God's Word. This is the Bible. And it's full of stories. It's full of wonderful, great stories of great men and women in the Bible have done incredible things, and yet there is not a single hero, like perfect hero in the Bible. Did you know that the Bible is full of people who have moral, fla- moral failures? Okay, Adam and Eve, right, disobeyed God, they ate the fruit. Noah, he was a drunk. Abraham, he was a liar and insult like his wife off as his sister, okay? Isaac and Rebekah, they played favorites with their two kids, and that messed them up because then, uh, what, Jacob grows up to be a liar to his father, steals the family inheritance, uh, dresses up as Esau, so he's a liar and a thief, okay? Um, then we have Moses, we've talked about him, he's a murderer, and God, well, okay, we're going to use him. King David, all right, he's an adulterer, a murderer, Oh, and what? And a bad father, too. Okay? Like, the list goes on and on. Even in the New Testament, you have Peter denies Christ three times. Okay, Paul, he murders Christians. He's like, in his day, Saddam Hussein, okay, or ISIS. Okay? The Bible is full of really horrible people that God still decides to choose and use, save, and do the most incredible things. Now, I think there's at least three good reasons why Scripture is full of people who are not heroes. Number one, okay, I think it shows that the Bible is true. I think it's because the Bible is true. Now, if you were going to make up a religion, and if you were going to, like, make up stories to put in your religion, wouldn't you pick, like, the most amazing stories wouldn't your religion include, like, the most perfect people? Because then you would be like, man, can you imagine if you were like Zeus? You know, why, why can't you be like this perfect person? Join our stories. But the reason why these stories include corrupt people is probably because that's the way it happened. Like, the Bible records faithfully and truthfully. This is exactly the way it happened. So I think that's the first reason. The Bible is true. Second, it allows you and I to relate to the character, okay? It allows you and I to relate to the character. So if you've, 
If you've ever told a lie, okay, you probably would be able to relate to people like Abraham. Okay? If you've ever been a coward, you would be able to relate to Gideon. Okay? The Bible has to be relatable to you and me. If it doesn't relate to you, it's not going to make sense to you. If this doesn't apply to me, why should you care? But the fact is, we can read stories and you can see yourself in that story. But the only reason why you can is because they're corrupt just like I'm corrupt, just like we're corrupt. Now, third, and I think this is one of the most important reasons why the Bible doesn't include heroes, it shows how great God is. I mean, this falls so in line with what the Bible says, that God uses the weak to shame the strong, okay? He uses the humble to shame the prideful, okay? God, he picks the lowliest, okay, and makes them MVPs. And it's not to show how great I am or show how great you are. He does it to show how great he is. I love that the Bible has no heroes because there's only one hero, and that's God. In a very famous passage, people come up to Jesus and they say, they call him good teacher. Good teacher. And you know how Jesus responds to that? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Who he's basically saying is, if you're going to call me good, you might as well call me God. Because he's the only one who's really good. And that's our story today. It's about a person that God chooses, and it's the person that you least expect God to choose. Okay? Her name's Rahab. And we're going to look at her story here very shortly. And we're going to find out some things about her past. I mean, she's got some flaws, and I mean, there's some pretty, you know, gross and horrible flaws in her past, and yet God is going to do something amazing in her life. And the big idea, and this is, I get this from uh, my time upstairs with the children, okay, is I love to tell the children the big idea ahead of time. And here it is, okay, God saves broken people like you and me to help save broken people like you and me. Okay, it's a lot like the with Pastor Sam, but let me say it again. I think God saves broken people like you and me to help save broken people like you and me. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2, uh, but we will have the verses up on the screen for you if you do not have your Bible. Now let me uh, provide us with some background, some context for you to better understand the story of Rahab. Okay. Now, the story of Rahab, this takes place after God has sent Moses to Egypt. Okay. He does the ten plagues. The, the Israelites leave Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They wander in the desert for 40 years. And during this 40 years in the desert, okay, they conquer these two Amorite kingdoms. Okay. Now, the Amorites were people who uh, are kind of anti-God. They're God's enemies. They don't like God. They don't follow God. They follow their own pagan gods. Um, and God's known about the Amorites and all the evil and the wickedness that they've been doing. And he actually, he's known this for like 500 years. So as the Israelites are right now, after 40 years in the desert, are about to cross the Jordan River, go into the promised land, and the first city that they're called to attack is the city of Jericho. Jericho is where Rahab lives, okay? And Jericho is on God's hit list, 
Okay, so sometimes people like read, you know, this part of the Old Testament and like, oh my God, how can God, how can this loving God, you say he's this gracious, merciful, loving God come in and destroy a city full of people, like total destruction. How are you telling me that that's a loving God? And that's because you and I don't know that in Genesis, God already has this conversation with Abraham 500 years before. And he says, I know the wickedness that's happening in Jericho, okay? And I'm, we think God is doing these 500 years. He's being patient. 500 years, he is being patient. So I kind of want to read the scripture for us here. This comes in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to him, Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That's Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, Abraham, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. So he's, Abraham, you'll be dead at this time. And then in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So think about it like a cup. And this cup, like people are putting evil into this cup. And this cup is like God's wrath, okay? And it's filling up, and it's filling up, and it's filling up, and God is saying, this cup is, is filling up. Like, these people are doing evil and wickedness, and you think God's just going to let that slide? Like, God's going to not do anything about that? Okay? His judgment is going to come upon Jericho and the rest, and he's been waiting 500 years for them to change their ways, 500 years to turn to him and ask for mercy and forgiveness. And now, the story of Rahab is the judgment is at the footsteps. So, we're going to start the story. The story begins with Joshua and some spies, but it quickly turns to our main character, which is Rahab. And she's about to receive some spies. So go ahead and read with me. In verse 1, chapter 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go. Look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who have come to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken up the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. The men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. And in parentheses, it says, but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax, which she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And the gate was shut. So a couple of things that we find out from this story is we find out what Rahab does for a living. Uh, she is known as Rahab the prostitute. And um, it was kind of a fun fact that Sam pointed out to me is she actually never really loses that title. Like she's always known as Rahab the prostitute. Um, like in Hebrews, when she gets praised and commended, she's still called 
Rahab the prostitute. And like James, the book of James, commends her and honors her, but calls her Rahab the prostitute. It's like, which other Rahabs are there in the Bible? I don't know. I, I thought it was really interesting that Pastor Sam pointed that out, and I don't know why uh, Scripture does that. But she is a prostitute. That is a moral flaw. It was gross then, uh, as it is now. She was uh, made to live away from her family. She lives inside the wall. She doesn't even live in the main community with where the other people live because it's a very sinful act, and you do sinful acts in places where people can't see or uh, speak judgment to you. Um, now, aside from her profession, she does something super sketchy here. Now, if you've read this story, you you've may have asked this question before if this was okay, but guys, she tells a lie. I don't know if you catch that in the story, okay, but she, she tells a lie. Now, forget for a second, like, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, all right? This is a flat-out lie, and a lie is anything that you say with the intent of misleading or misguiding somebody, and that's exactly what she does. So, I think we have to ask the question, like, is lying okay? I mean, what do you think? Is lying okay? So I was struggling with this question, and the geeky, nerdy Jimmy uh, that I am, you know, I combed through the Bible, I picked up every commentary and every resource I can get my little hands on, and nowhere in the Bible is lying condoned. Like, never in the Bible does it ever say that lying is okay. But... It seems here like she doesn't, she doesn't get commended for the lying, but she doesn't also get like, you know, hey, good job for lying kind of thing. And we actually see a very similar story in uh, like Moses' day. So in Moses' day, like Pharaoh, he was like, hey, you need to kill all the male babies. Any Israelite male baby, he tells the Egyptian midwives, you need to kill those babies. But the Egyptian midwives... They were so afraid of God, like they were more afraid of God than they were of Pharaoh, so they didn't kill the male babies. So when Pharaoh asked the Egyptian midwives, why didn't you do what I told you to do, they told a lie. They said, you know what, we just couldn't get there in time. Man, those, those Israelite women, man, they, they just do it like right then and there. Like they just give birth real quick. We could, I couldn't make it. And I was like... That's a lie. And then God, he blesses the Egyptian midwives. He gives them families of their own. Now, I don't think God blesses them. Like, the scripture doesn't say God blesses them because they told a lie. Like, God blessed them because they chose God over Pharaoh. Okay? I think that the Bible never condones lying, but I think there's enough evidence in scripture to see that in certain rare, extreme cases, we will be constrained, I think, to lie in order to stop life-threatening wickedness. Like, I mean, these things probably only come, but, I mean, every so hundred years or whatever. Like, I think the last time I really think about this is like, you know, World War I and II, where, you know, people are hiding the Jews, and they knock on the door, and they say, are you hiding Jews? You know, and those people lied. But they lied because they were preventing life-threatening wickedness. So, yeah, I don't think the Bible says lying's okay, but I think there are times for it. Um, Now, what's really interesting in this story, so it's not that she tells a lie, it's actually what she says next. 
Like the shocking part in this story is not the lie. The shocking part, and I'm excited to get into this next part, is what she says after the lie. Uh, Read with me here in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, or sorry, given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Okay. Why is this really incredible? It's incredible because this is a heartfelt confession of faith to God. And let me point out some interesting things about her words here and keep the text up here. Okay. She knows the name. Let me kind of say this. She knows God's name. Like, she knows God's name, the name. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you look in your own Bibles or if you ever look any Bible, okay, you'll sometimes see the word LORD in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay, your Bible does that on purpose to let you know that that word that's being used, it's not necessarily the word LORD. What it means is it means the name. It means they're using God's name. And it's a name that's so holy, it's so precious that not even modern-day Jews dare say his name. You'll never see a modern-day Jew say the name. Okay? In, in Hebrew, okay, they rather say Adonai, which translates into master or Lord. That's as close to saying God's name that they will ever say is Adonai. Okay? But the, the name, and we've heard, is Yahweh. Okay? Like before, it was just four consonant letters. No vowels. And they put no vowels on purpose so that you could never pronounce the name. Because God's name. This is God's name. This is the name. And look at who it is. This is Rahab the prostitute. She's a Amorite. She's the enemy of God. She's part of the people who for the last 500 years, okay, have been working against God, has been doing all sorts of evil and wickedness, and all of a sudden, she's using God by name. That's huge. Now, there's one more huge part in her confession that you need to see, and that's the last verse of what she says. Verse 11, she says, When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. And then here it is. For the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In heaven above and on the earth below. Now, what you don't see is that in this time in the ancient Near East, for, for you to say that language, God above and, and the earth below, you're Basically saying, this God of yours is the supreme God. He's the only God. He's the true God. He's the one God who matters more than anybody. He's God of heaven above and the earth below. And we actually, we see this language again in the Ten Commandments. 
The second commandment says you shall not have any idols of the heaven above and the earth below. That language is used on purpose because that language says this is the supreme God. There is nobody who stands on par next to, on top of God, your God. She says this, an Amorite prostitute, your God, the Lord, he is God in the heaven above and the earth below. This is a confession of faith. This is a woman who is completely switching teams. She's switching sides. She was on the Amorite sides, evil, wickedness, 500 years. Now God's judgment is at their doorstep. Smart woman, brilliant woman. I think I'm going to go join the winning team. Let me go ahead and say, you know what? These pagan gods that they worship, okay, they're false gods, they're weak gods, okay, they deserve judgment. I am coming to you and I'm saying that I believe in your God. I use his name and I say that your God, the Lord, he is the supreme God and he's the true God. She completely changes teams. Amen. I love brilliant, brilliant, brilliant woman. Now, after she has confessed this faith to God, the next thing that she does, which is also really smart, she makes a request. So first it's a confession. First it's pledging allegiance to God. And second, it's making a request for salvation. We see that today. We confess to God, God, you are God. You are my Lord. You are my, my master. Save me. Save me. Let's read her her uh, request here in verses 12 and 13. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save them from death. She makes a confession and then she says, save me. I know this land is going to be given to you. Save me. And not just me. Who else does she want? She wants her whole family, mom, dad, brother, sister, and all their families. Okay? She made this confession. Okay? She's, she's good. She's, like, saved. Like, she's going to be fine. But she wants more. She wants mom and dad to be saved, too. She wants brother and sister. She wants them to be spared from God's judgment, too. And it's interesting, because she's a prostitute, we know that she's living alone, and she's living in the wall away from the community. I mean, the text doesn't have to tell you what mom and dad thought about their daughter, the prostitute. What did brother and sister think about her, the prostitute? And yet, she still loves them. They rejected her, and yet she, had, she wants to see them saved. I is an amazing, radical type of love, if you ask me. So she makes this request, and there's an interesting thing that, that you need to know about this request. God. God makes very specific instructions and very specific commands to the Israelites not to make any deals with the Amorites. Okay? They have a clear mission. 
go and destroy. You're supposed to cross this river, and you're supposed to bring the city and the people and the cattle, everything to total destruction. You're not supposed to make deals with Amorites. But they make a deal with Rahab the prostitute. And you have to ask, why? How? Why her? Why her? Of all the people, why are you going to make a deal with the prostitute? And that is what we call grace. That's what we call mercy. So many times, like, I look at myself and I'm like, man, you know, what flaws? I'm, I'm a pretty stand-up guy. I mean, I don't cheat on my wife. You know, I, I rarely tell a lie. I mean, I'm a pretty upstanding guy. What flaws? You know, side by side, man, with other people, I see, like, I'm a jerk sometimes. I get frustrated. I get impatient. I'm like, and side by side of Jesus, I'm like, I really fall short. And I, and I have to ask my question, why me? Why, does, why, does, why should God make any deals with me? He doesn't, des- I don't deserve that. He doesn't have to make any deals with me, and yet he does. Okay? Does he have to make a deal with you? He doesn't, but yet he chooses to. And I think if he, if he could choose Rahab after all that she's done, okay, and hear her confession, she's, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to you, that gives me hope. I can pledge my allegiance to him too. She can come to him with this request of save me. I can come to him with this request, save me. And not just me but those whom I love. God saves broken people like you and me to help save broken people like you and me. I want to say that one more time. See, God doesn't have to save me, but God saves a broken person like me, like you, to help save broken people like me and like you. Now, before she leaves... The spies make her uh, agree to three conditions. Uh, If you wouldn't mind reading with me, starting at verse 17. The men say to her, This oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head. If a hand is laid on him, if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. She sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window." So there's three conditions that she needs to agree to and hold to, right? Or this oath that she made with them is, is broken. And one of them, okay, is the red cord, the scarlet cord that she needs to tie outside her window, okay? Now, there's very practical and obvious reasons why that needs to be tied there because uh, if 
the Israelite army is charging onto the wall, they need to be able to identify, right, which, which one's her place so they know not to attack it. So this is a very practical reason for tying the scarlet cord up there. But what this does, this is an interesting part in the story, okay, this is meant to bring our focus, your focus, back to a other story that happened before this in Egypt called Passover, okay? It's, Passover is another story about God's judgment coming upon a city, okay, known as the 10th plague, where this judgment from God was going to kill the firstborn, okay? But there was a way for you to be spared that judgment, and it was to take the spotless lamb, to sacrifice the spotless lamb, and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And the angel of death would pass over that house, and they would be spared God's just judgment. Guys, this red cord is exactly the same concept. That red cord, red, the red blood, the red cord, who do you think they're pointing to? The Messiah. All of this is pointing to Jesus the one who will ultimately take on the judgment. Because it's not like you have this God, okay? It's not like God's this uh, pushover, you just say, I'm sorry, and he just, like, lets it go because he's, like, that kind of a merciful God. No, God's a justice and merciful God. He's like, okay, I'm still going to bring judgment. Instead of bringing it out on you, I'm going to pour that cup of wrath all on my son Jesus. And he will take the full weight the full punishment, the full suffering of your sin so that you can be shown mercy, okay? God still is a God of justice. Make no mistake, God still is a God of justice. He proves it by crucifying his own son on the cross. And yet the cross is still the symbol of mercy for you and I. That red cord, that's Jesus, okay? Do you have that red cord tied in your heart? Are you a follower of Jesus? Like today, this is a day for you to make that same confession of faith that she did and to tie the red cord. As she, they're asking her to tie the red cord so that she can be spared. Now, the second condition, okay, is also practical. They say, everybody that you want saved needs to be in your house, and they need to stay in your house, okay? That's very practical, okay? If cousin, you know, Joe steps outside, oh, Joe, you may not want to do that because, um, well, some people are going to come. They're going to kill you. You need to stay in house so you can be spared, okay, so you can be saved. Now, the story does not tell you and I, okay, which family members came to her house and which family members did not. We only know that she has the intent to bring people into her house. And the conditions are clear. Just because you make this confession of faith does not mean that they are saved. Okay? That's how it works for you and me too. Okay? I cannot confess my allegiance to Jesus Christ, ask him for forgiveness, okay, and then expect my great-grandmother who died, you know, hundreds of years ago for her to be taken from hell and go to heaven or something, okay? Which is some beliefs like, uh, like Catholicism, 
Okay, let's say like, oh, you can save your relative from purgatory and stuff like that, or Mormons who believe that you can uh, elevate your relative to higher levels of heaven, okay, by your confession. That's not how it works, okay? I cannot save my family member by confessing for them. They need to get into the house with me. Now, the point here is, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you care about getting your family in the house? Do you have family members? Do you have friends? Do you have loved ones who are not inside the house? Do you care about getting them inside the house? Because you know, as well as Rahab, what will happen to them if they do not get in the house. Now, I, I get this awesome privilege of coming up here and preaching God's word, okay? And I do it because I love you. And I, as someone who loves you, want to tell you the truth, okay? God's judgment, it's a real thing. And right now, okay, it's, I don't know if it's 500 years like he gave Jericho. I don't know how long it's going to take for this cup to fill up, but we know that there's going to be a day, which is called the day, where Jesus comes back a second time. Now, the first time he came, he said, I came to seek and save the lost. That was the rescue mission. That was like the spies coming. Hey, Rahab, this is what's happening. She makes the right decision. But when the Israelites come back a second time, like Jesus comes back a second time, it's a totally different story. When Jesus comes back this time, he's not going to be on a donkey going to his crucifixion. No, he's going to be riding a white horse with a sword in his hand, and he takes names and kicks butt. We need people in our, the house with a scarlet cord. Finally, the third final condition is they cannot or she cannot betray the spies. Okay? They tell her, you cannot, after we leave, you can't go to the king of Jericho and tell him our plan. Okay? In other words, you need to stay faithful to your confession and to the promise, to the oath that you made with us. Okay? As Christians, we believe we are saved okay, by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. You and I cannot work or do anything to merit salvation. It is a free gift of God that comes by faith through Jesus. But what is faith? If I asked you to hand, hand me a handful of faith, what does that look like? It, it, it doesn't look like anything because faith is a lot like love. I can't ask you to just give me a handful of love. And I don't know what that looks like. You and I, all we can do is see the evidence of love. You and I, all we can see is love worked out. Okay? Like, one of the things that I, I've heard Frances say a lot of times, she goes, love is an action. She always tells me that. Love is an action. Okay? I can say whatever poetic and nice words Okay, even sorry sometimes doesn't go far enough. Okay, no, she needs to see a change in me. Not just, don't be sorry you forgot to put the alarm on. Next time, put the alarm on so we wake up on time kind of thing. All right? That's how it works, okay? Love is an action. Guess what? Faith is an action. Faith is an action. 
You and I can't just say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, but then you don't do what he says. You say, oh God, you are the God of heaven above and the earth below. You're the supreme God. You're the true God. But in this instance where I need to lie about my work hours, I'm going to choose the one that gives me the greater paycheck. Okay? We need, like Rahab, to stay faithful. Okay? It is faith worked out. And we'll go ahead and read this passage here in Hebrews. Okay, where she gets commended for faith. What, what Hebrews 11 says about her. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Okay. Something special you need to know about this chapter. Hebrews 11 is famously known as the Hall of Faith. Okay, Hebrews 11, you know who goes who even, whose name even goes in that chapter? Only the best of the best. It is the hall of fame of the Bible. Abraham's in there. Moses is in there. A bunch of all these awesome guys are in there. And you include Rahab the prostitute? Yes. Yes, you do. Because her faith was amazing. Her faith was radical. Despite her flaws, despite how she's messed up in the past, that does not matter. She's confessed allegiance to God. She has made her request for herself and her family, and by faith, she upheld her end of the bargain. Yeah, she goes in the hall of faith. And we'll look at the passage in James, which commends her for the work, for the good deeds. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body... As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. She is the perfect example of someone who is full of faith and backs it up with her works. Hebrews commends her for her faith. The book of James commends her for her works. Remember who she was. Rahab the prostitute. The least one anyone would pick. And God chooses her. Let me just close it with this one final little fact here. As kids, maybe you've read the story of how Jericho's walls fell down. You know, in Sunday school, like they teach you how God commanded them to march around the city of Jericho for six days, march around it for six days. And on the seventh day, and we know the seventh day is called the Sabbath day. The Sabbath... The seventh day is the day that the walls came down. And they don't do work on the Sabbath. So they weren't even the ones responsible for bringing the, the walls down. They're not even the ones responsible for conquering Jericho. Who defeated the city of Jericho? God. And he did that all by himself. So I'm sitting here and I'm reading the story of Rahab. And I'm saying, well, if God, if you were the one doing the, all the work anyway, then why did you send the spies? Like, why did you even send them to the city? What, what information, what, like, what, what progress was made by sending the spies? For defeating Jericho? None. Because God did that. Why did God send the spies? I think God knew who was living in the city wall. I think God knew 
that Rahab was there, God knew that she would confess her love and allegiance to him and that she would want to see her family saved. That was a rescue mission, not a spy mission. So I want to invite the, the worship team up as I kind of give this closing. But the story of Rahab, I think, is one of the biggest turnaround stories in human history. If we really give an honest look about who she was, what kind of occupation she was doing, that she was part of the Amorites, these people who for the last 500 years have only done what was evil and wicked in God's sight. Like I said, maybe I look at myself, you look at yourself, and you say, what flaws? What flaws? But if we take an honest look inside the the deepest corners of your heart, what do you see? Have you struggled with lying, with being impatient towards a parent or a child? Not always wanting to tell the full truth. Maybe you just want to tell half-truths to make yourself appear more better than what you really are. All of us, we have flaws just like Rahab. And yet, God didn't have to make a deal with Rahab. They were commanded not to make any deals with her. And yet, she is shown mercy. She is shown grace. I think if God can show mercy and grace to someone like Rahab, don't you think that he could show mercy and grace to someone like you? She went from prostitute, okay, to being part of Jesus' lineage. In Matthew 1, we see that Rahab, she's the great-great-grandmother of King David. And David is an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. How amazing is it that this woman, fully flawed, gets to be part of Jesus' bloodline? You tell me how awesome God is for doing that. Why he would choose her. Why would God choose the woman at the well to reveal himself as the Messiah? Why not someone better? And that's not who God is. This this book, the Bible, is full of people who are imperfect. Full of imperfect people whom God still loves, God still saves, God still chooses. Guys, Rahab, she changed her future and she changed her family's future. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you have an opportunity right now, like she did, to change your fate and the fate of your family. And if you are a follower of Jesus, remember that God saved a broken person like you to help save broken people like you. Heavenly Father, I close this just in prayer. Lord, I love my church, and because I love my church, I speak the truth. Lord, you are a just God, and your judgment, Lord, will come one day on the day, that last day. Lord, and we don't deserve mercy, we don't deserve grace, and yet you give it willingly and freely to anyone who's willing to receive it. 
I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not confessed their allegiance to God, to Jesus, and made the request for salvation, I pray that they would do so today. It is offered to them right now. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone that you bring onto our minds, Lord, a family member or a friend who's not inside the house right now, help us to get them inside the house where the scarlet cord is tied, where the scarlet cord shows that you would pass over us and we would be shown mercy. And finally, Lord, I pray for my friends here. Lord, that you would do the same miracle in our lives that you did in Rahab. You completely changed her future. You didn't just save Rahab. You didn't just save her. Lord, you turned her into this amazing woman who would be part of Jesus' lineage. God, I pray that you would turn our lives around in the same way, that we wouldn't just be saved, Lord, that you would turn our lives around and we would do the most amazing and incredible things for you, our Lord, Jesus Christ, who who saved us, who died for us, who cleanses us from all of our sin, Lord, that now we have a right standing before God and we will live forever and ever with God. In Jesus' name I pray.